Listen now to the Word of God. Revelation 1, 1 through 8, and 22, 6 through 21. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without Price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So reads the Word of God. Let me open with a question this morning. What comes to your mind when you think of Revelation? Some might say more generally, um, I think of future events leading to the end of the world and the return of Christ. It's good. Others might say quite specifically, I think of symbolic references to things we're already seeing happen so we know the end is near. Still others might say, I have absolutely no idea. When I think of Revelation, my mind goes blank. Probably each of you are in one of those three categories this morning. (laughs) And if you're in the latter group, I do hope that you're blessed by the thought that this morning we're going to begin trying to put some content in our minds with regard to this final and easily most challenging book of the Bible. And believe it or not, the book itself, the book itself does a pretty good job of telling its readers how best to understand its message. And that's what we want to look at beginning this morning. We're doing this bracketing of beginning and ending and a stream that runs through the middle of Revelation as sort of an overview introduction to the book. But as we start next week in earnest, we will cover the whole of chapter 1, including these opening eight verses that, um, that we are also addressing a bit this morning. So that's where we're headed. But this morning, we want to pick up those hints, those clues. We're doing an overview of the book today, but we'll be giving primary attention to that opening and closing, the first eight verses and the last 16 verses. And you may want to just put your finger in both places because at different points we'll flip back and forth and see the correlation between them. And hopefully you've already heard that a bit as we've read them. You hear that the closing echoes much of the wording of the opening. That's always something to pay attention to when you're studying God's Word. But mostly we're just going to be picking up the hints. We're going to be noticing the clues that help us know how to read this book. And then we're going to be applying those as we move through it together. So let's, let's point out seven such hints. Seven such hints in the text. And I believe those are going to show up on the screen as we move through them so that um, you can see them, ponder them, write them down. Because some, some of them, as I said, will move by rather quickly. All right? Hint number one is that the opening words give us the biggest help. The opening words give us the biggest help in understanding this book. Namely, in verse 1 there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That tells us what this book is about. The revelation of Jesus Christ, and I believe it's a subjective statement, a revelation of the person. Because what's being revealed is future things 
related to this person. So Jesus is being revealed. Jesus and his plan and purpose, his identity, his role with the church, Jesus is being identified in this book. And this word revelation here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the Greek word apocalypse, apocalypsis, apocalypsis is actually how you would say it in the original language, but where we think of the word apocalypse ourselves as referring to something, I don't know, chaotically and and cosmically catastrophic, the word actually just means to reveal. So that's where we get the word revelation. Revelation is just the first word of this writing. And it means to reveal. It means to uncover. It means to take out of hiding. And that's what we're intending to see happen as we move through this. Jesus Christ taken out of hiding in his rule and reign over all things. And that's where the book will finish, establishing that rule and reign and our part in it. But apocalyptic is also a literary genre at this, purpose, at this point in history, in the first century and still for us. So it's a word there in the text that means revelation to uncover, but it's also a literary genre. There were a number of books written in the Jewish world especially uh, in the couple of centuries before and after the birth of Jesus called Jewish apocalyptic. They had certain characteristics, and Revelation shares some of those characteristics with it. One of the characteristics it doesn't share is it was usually a pseudonym for the author of those Jewish apocalyptic writings. It was also the fact that they just sort of looked at their point in history, told it or retold it in images, but weren't really seeking to prophesy or tell something future. It was uh, almost an encoded language that was helpful in some ways. Um, uh, some authors say that it gave, uh, uh, politi- it gave opportunity for politically oriented statements to be made without risking the charge of treason. But it was in a, a literary genre. It was a style of writing, and revelation has some of those characteristic, it, it, characteristics, employing symbolism, vivid images, Grotesque beasts, mysterious numbers, oftentimes in kaleidoscopic combinations with one another. Those are characteristics of apocalyptic genre. It's oftentimes melodramatic, black and white contrasts, in groups and out groups, and very little in the middle. And as we said, then, oftentimes for the protection of whoever is writing that, to keep them from feeling the opposition of governing forces while they deal with some sort of hardship during their lifetime, probably under the hand of their government. We'll talk more about that genre of apocalyptic as we move through the series, but, but it's helpful to know that in this opening hint that we're looking at, That opening word or those opening words give us the biggest clue. They tell us how to view Revelation. It's apocalyptic. So in addition to that, first hint, hint number two, the opening sentence tells us why it's hard to understand. You might even throw a so in there. The opening sentence tells us why it's so hard to understand. 
Here it is again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. One of the characteristics that sets this apart from other apocalyptic writings, we would say non-inspired apocalyptic writings, is that it looks to the future. The things John received from Jesus were still future for him. That makes this a challenging book to understand. We don't have other Scripture to help us know for sure just what John means as he writes much of this material. What he's pointing to, like we have for many of the other Old Testament writings that were prophetic, and now we've seen history progress and we can look at what they meant and understand a bit more of what they were saying because we can tie it off to something. Don't have that with Revelation for the most part. So writings, we're looking forward to the future, but we don't have a... um, a means of knowing exactly what he's talking about. That can make this a hard-to-understand book. That's hint number two. And the text itself tells you that. It's talking about future tense things. That makes it tough. Hint number three. The opening paragraph explains more of the complexity. So the opening words, then the opening sentence, now the opening paragraph explains even more of the complexity. And here we start understanding a bit more of why we can struggle with Revelation. So, verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Verse 2 who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He there is John himself. So he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So this isn't your typical process of inspiration in the writing of Scripture, where the Spirit of God works directly on the mind or heart of his chosen author as he's writing. It's usually, as we would understand it from 2 Peter, a one-step process. The Spirit of God is keeping the human author from error as he writes Scripture under the guidance and direction of the Spirit. Here, it's different. God gave this revelation to Jesus to show to His servants. All right? So it's going from God to Jesus. And I'm going to stop there for just a minute and say... He's also not enabling writing so much as he's showing visual images. That's what the text says. He's showing or signifying the things that must soon take place. So he's giving John visual images, and and John is struggling at times to express in words what he's actually seeing. As Paul talked a little bit earlier about drawing a picture of Revelation 4 and 5, there's some places in Revelation that can be helpful to do that, to try to wrap your mind around what's being described there because it probably is a visual image that John is trying to put into words rather than just forming words in his own mind and heart to communicate what the Lord is laying on his heart. So this one has a number of layers of complexity to it, one of which... The revelation itself seems to be coming in images. So God gave this revelation to Jesus to show to his servants. But even more, Jesus isn't just showing these images directly to his servants or directly to his chosen writer. 
There's that another step in the process, and that's why you see that listed out there on the, the, the uh, slide in front of you. He's, he's making it known to his servant John by sending an angel who bore witness to the Word of God and this testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's going from God to Jesus to his angel to John to his servants. That's challenging. And, and this angel, you saw in chapter 22, John was so overcome by the power and glory apparent in this angel that he fell down and worshipped him as though he were God himself. So this is what John is dealing with as he's receiving this revelation from God through Christ, through this angel, and is even being corrected by the angel and then writing down for the servants who are the targeted audience here, verse 1, what God wants them to know. This is a challenging process. This is a complex book, and this is part of what makes it complex. But if we recognize that it's different in many ways from a lot of the other writings of Scripture that we see, and that the book itself is telling us that, it can be very helpful. Apart from knowing, though, that the Spirit of God is superintending this process, we'd receive the messages of this book with all the confidence we have in the outcome of a game of telephone. Going from one to the next to the next. And what do you hear after it passes through ears and then out the mouths of a number of people in a row? Having said that, though, it isn't appropriate even to joke about this because this is the Word of God and this is how God Himself purposed to show His servants the things that must soon take place. This is how God purposed to do it. And he did want his servants to know these things. In fact, he wants them to be blessed by these things, not confused by them. So even though we can see why confusion might come in some ways, we recognize that God is doing something intentional here, and he believes that through this process it's the best way to communicate his word at this point and for his people to hear it and to understand it and to be blessed by it. That's what we should get from Revelation as we read it, study it, as we hear it and obey it. This brings us to the threshold of the next and most helpful window into this unique book that we'll encounter today, the clear evidence that God does intend for those who hear it to be blessed. Hint number four, there are seven blessings in Revelation that begin right here. And we're going to take a few minutes with this particular point because we'll just go to the text where those blessings are mentioned, all right? There are seven blessings in Revelation that begin right here. And this first one, the first one that appears right here in chapter 1, verse 3, is a two-way blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads it so it can be heard. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So the first of these seven blessings is a two-way blessing. The idea seems to be that blessing comes both in reading this prophecy so that it can be heard and then when it's obeyed by those who hear it. And those who hear it are blessed because the time is near and so therefore they are being made ready for that time. 
The things described herein will be happening soon. We hear that at the beginning and the end. And so there's blessing to the one who hears and responds to what's written here. Number two, this blessing here in chapter 1, verse 3, is matched at the opening of the conclusion over in chapter 22, verse 7. So we're going to jump immediately to that one. It's actually the sixth of the seven blessings taken in order going through the book. But it opens that final paragraph that we just read a few minutes ago. Chapter 22, verse 7. The text says, Behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is talking here. Again, though, the mention of nearness. Then a promise of reward for obedience. It's the same. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's the targeted intention. Hear it and respond to it with obedience. You might be asking, what in the world would that look like? Well, we'll talk about it as we move through it. Right now, we just need to hear the book tell us how to read it and how to understand it, what it's supposed to mean for us. Third, this is the, actually the seventh blessing. It's just a few verses later. This general blessing in chapter 22, verse 7 gets a bit more specific in chapter 22, verse 14 with the final mention of blessing of the seven that are listed in this book. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's a reference, as we'll see, to enduring through trial. Your robes are washed as you face trial and hardship and endure in obedience and in faithful walk. The, 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 the righteous acts of the saints are the white clothing with which they are dressed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when your robes are washed, that means you're enduring through hardship and through suffering and clinging to the Word of God and to the teaching of this book. So, blessed are those who wash their robes. Their righteousness is proven by their cross-enabled obedience, we might say, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. They've come in by the means that God has appointed. All right? So you've got a right to the tree of life. You have a place in heaven. That same imagery comes a little bit later, just in the last few verses of Revelation, letting you know that this is talking about the eternal reward of the believer. So blessed are the ones who endure in faithful obedience because they will have a share in heaven. Praise God. That's a blessing. It's part of what we get from reading Revelation. All right, so that's numbers one and six and seven. Now we're just going to fill in the four in the middle because we wanted to go to those brackets because there's so, such similar statements being made in the opening and closing of these seven blessings. Now let's look at the four that come in between. Between these four bracketed, uh, repeated blessings of the opening and closing, we find the first of those four in chapter 14, verse 13. After telling us what happens if anyone worships the beast and its image, John then reports what's awaiting those who don't worship the beast and its image. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. I love that. When you hear... God say in his word, write this down. This is a trustworthy saying. It's another way of saying the same thing. Write this down. This one's a keeper. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Their obedience will pay off, and it will pay off in what? Rest. Rest in the eternal kingdom of God. That's a blessing for believers that hear and obey the words of this book. Next, John records the words of Jesus in chapter 16, verse 15, the next blessing. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming like a thief, meaning nobody knows when. He's not coming to steal something. Nobody knows when a thief is going to arrive. If they did, as Jesus said, they would be home and they would keep it from happening. But Jesus is saying, Nobody knows when I am coming. He said in his Olivet Discourse, Not even the Son, only the Father. But what he adds here, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is usually using clothing and nakedness in the same metaphorical way that Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Talking about being clothed is, is, is being covered in the righteousness of Christ and And being naked is being exposed, being on your own. Same thing here. It tells us that the imagery of this book is symbolic. There are many literal truths that are shared here, but if we miss the symbolism, we miss the point. Really important to get that. And here, that's being told to us as one of the blessings. It's not telling us we can't go to sleep between now and when Jesus returns. It's not telling us we have to sleep with our clothes on until that time. This is the stay awake language that again was so prominent in Mark's record of Jesus' uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount of Olives, where stay awake, he says it three or four times at the end, that's the whole point. It just means keep alert, be looking to the coming of Christ and living in expectation of that coming. Stay awake so that you might not be unprepared for it when it comes. The next one, a very familiar promise in chapter 19, verse 9. We've made reference to it a couple of times this morning. 19.9, and the angel said to me, write this. There it is again. Write it down. It's reliable. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's an invitation you're not going to want to miss. And he said to me, to continue that verse, these are the true words of God. It finishes like it begins. Write this down. Why? Because it's trustworthy. The true words of God. This again is description for being clothed in righteousness. The one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb has endured in faithful obedience. And if we looked at verses 7 and 8 leading into verse 9, we'd recognize that their good works... Their obedience, enabled by the Spirit of God, enabled by the sacrifice of Christ, their good works are what prepared them for the day of their wedding to the Lamb like a bride in her wedding gown. So we're clothed in our good works on that day when we will finally be united with Christ forever. Finally, number five in the list, number seven in our handling of them this morning, Chapter 20, verse 6, in one of the most disputed chapters of this most disputed of books, Revelation 20, we see a blessing for believers. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The promised blessing of those being raised with Christ, enduring with him, and enjoying and entering into all the blessings that are ours in him. The sevenfold blessing of Revelation, as you can see by the passages we listed, just accelerates as we move toward the ending of this book. This is surely a central theme for the believer. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Seven in apocalyptic, the the complete number, the perfect number, perfect and complete blessing for the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who cling to the truths of God's Word and walk in obedience to it through the course of their lives. This is what we're reading. So surely a central theme for believers in the book of Revelation is the blessing that, our, that is ours because of the work of our Savior on our behalf. And it's also clearly a central theme for the book as a whole. So it doesn't just encourage us. It's part of what Revelation is written to communicate. Blessing to those who hear and who respond to the words of this book. So there's the first four hints. The next three won't take us quite as long. Revelation... Hint number five is prophecy. It's not just apocalyptic. Right? It's prophecy. It's not just apocalyptic. Again, back to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Prophecy and apocalyptic oftentimes go together, but not always. Not all apocalyptic is prophetic, as we've already seen from the examples in ancient Israel. And not all prophecy is apocalyptic. In fact, much prophecy is not apocalyptic. Think of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, prophesying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. No apocalyptic imagery there. That's a prophetic word talking about a future event. So prophecy and apocalyptic can oftentimes go together, but not always. Some prophecy in Scripture is set in an apocalyptic style, especially prophecy about end times and judgment and blessing. We see it in Ezekiel, in Daniel, in Joel, in Zechariah, for instance, not just here in Revelation. Apocalyptic imagery is used. Jesus himself used apocalyptic imagery in his teaching on the end times, in his sermon on the Mount of Olives that we've already referred to a couple of times, Matthew 24, Mark 13. But prophecy doesn't have to be apocalyptic, and not all of it is, even right here in Revelation. Not all of Revelation employs apocalyptic imagery in the prophetic word that it is speaking. That's really important to keep in mind. Prophecy and apocalyptic are separate And they even happen separately in Revelation. Chapters 2 through 5, for instance, employ apocalyptic imagery very little over the next several weeks because we're going to take seven weeks to go through chapters 2 and 3. We're going to take one week for each of the seven churches to which this letter was addressed because that's a great way to follow up on the book of Acts. That's part of the reason why we're studying um, Revelation right now. We're fast-forwarding to the end of the first century and hearing a prophetic word from Jesus assessing the churches of Asia 
and telling them what to do. And I believe, again, it's the number seven. I believe it represents the church as a whole. It's that number of completeness and apocalyptic. Seven churches are picked, not just because there happen to be seven churches in Asia in that mail delivery circuit that orders their names. It's because it's representative of the church as a whole, and the church in every generation until the return of Christ can read those letters with profit, just like you can read the other letters of the New Testament and be instructed and directed by it. So chapters 2 through 5 employ it very little. We read Jesus' assessment of those churches And we see prophetic promises from him regarding the outcomes of their sin or their repentance. And we see that entirely free of apocalyptic imagery in those letters. And then the throne room of God that Paul mentioned again earlier this morning. That throne room of God in heaven is filled with glistening images that are both reflective and and symbolic of glory and great power. But they're not all apocalyptic in nature at all. Some of them are just John striving to communicate the glory that he saw in the presence of God and clearly drawing on the descriptions from Ezekiel and Isaiah as they saw into the throne room of God and using some of their imagery to try to capture what he sees. But not apocalyptic. Just struggling to communicate the greatness of the glory of God. So, prophecy reveals God's purpose and plan in judgment and blessing. Apocalyptic is a literary genre. Prophecy is as well, we might say, when it's written down, but essentially what distinguishes prophecy is that it reveals God's purpose and plan in judgment and blessing. And John is doing that. He's been used by God through Jesus, through the angel, to communicate that to God's people. And what he's trying to show them is God's purpose and plan and judgment and blessing in this world. And at times he uses apocalyptic imagery. In fact, often he uses it to get that point across. But prophecy, prophecy is a word from God that's intended to comfort his people and to strike fear in the hearts of his enemies. It's intended to call his enemies by urging them toward repentance and faith and to reassure his people that despite the suffering that they're facing, this is not the end of the story. So clearly that's the intent here in Revelation for listeners to hear and obey. It's why we're focusing on the beginning and ending. You hear it again and again. Listen. Respond. That's because this is a prophetic word from God intended to encourage those who are pressing on in obedience and call to repentance those who are rebelling. So that's hint number five. Hint number six. I think this one could be the most important of all. Chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a simple, straightforward identification of the way John is writing here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, what is this? This is a letter. Revelation is a letter to seven first century churches. This is meant for them. This is a letter that would have made sense to them in its entirety 
Let that sink in. This is a letter that would have meant something to them in its entirety all the way back in the first century. We cannot lose touch with this fact. This is a letter to first century churches and it would have meant something to them in their time and in their place all the way from the beginning to the end. So this isn't just a book about the last seven years of world history. Written to everyone in general, but no one in particular. It's a letter. A New Testament epistle. It fits right in with the rest of our New Testament. Everything after the Gospels and Acts are letters to churches, including this one. So it's not at all unlike those letters from Paul and Peter and James that fill out the rest of the pages of our New Testament. We cannot forget this point, and we'll come back to it again and again. It'll be reinforced over the next seven weeks or after next week, the following seven weeks, uh, God willing, as we walk through those letters to the churches. Finally, the seventh hint this morning. The seventh hint is that the giver of this revelation is able to make it all happen. Here's where you can say amen. The giver of this revelation is able to make it all happen. We see here a portrait of our great and glorious God that's intended to undergird the confidence of the seven churches and us through them, enabling us to believe that this God is able to accomplish all that we'll read in these coming pages. And that is just what it does. That is the point. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 again. Here we can see what's intended. After hearing that this is a letter, here then is the opening greeting. Grace to you and peace. Shalom. Is that what revelation generates in your heart? Is that what it generates in the church? Grace and peace? That's what we hearers should receive from this writing. Grace and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before His throne. That's likely referring to a high order of angels, although that's a disputed text. We'll look at that because that image comes back a few more times in these opening chapters. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's an important word there, witness. It's the, it's the Greek word martyr, right? a faithful martyr. But back in the first century, that word actually did mean witness. And over time, it came to mean, in addition to that, those who might die for their witness. And surely, Jesus' death was involved in his being a witness to the truth that's being proclaimed in these pages. So Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. We talked about that on Easter Sunday, the ruler of kings of the earth. We talk about that weekly. We surrender and rejoice in our identity with King Jesus as his subjects. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. I love this. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. By the way, the, the focus changes. It's a greeting up there until the middle of verse 5, and you see in your ESV there's even a paragraph break there because now it turns and starts extolling Jesus at this point, John does. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What this says is that Jesus has done the impossible, and that's why he's worthy of worship. He has reconciled to a holy God sinful people, and this is looking forward to the day of their unification. Once and for all, finished. So he's done the impossible. And he will return, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, a theme that is repeated and repeated again in the closing paragraph, chapter 22, verses 7 and 12 and 20, and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Everybody will understand the implications. No part of his return will be hidden from anybody and everyone will understand what it means at the time that it happens. Even so, amen, says the text. And verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There's where we get that underscoring of hint number 7. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. Again, that's repeated in the conclusion, verses 6 and 13 of chapter 22. Who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. So this God can do whatever He pleases, whatever He plans, and He will. We can trust Him. And He is worthy of our worship just as John was commanded to do by that angel. That's what Revelation is giving us, undergirding, establishing the confidence and trust of the believers. So this God is trustworthy and able to bring about His good purpose and plan. Think about this. If this God is trustworthy and able to bring about His good purpose and plan on a universal scale from the beginning of creation to the end, surely He's trustworthy with our lives in this stage of that history. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. That's what Revelation gives us. We'll see that truth. God is worthy of our trust and worship. We'll see that again and again in this study. And there will be sizable challenges mounted against him in these pages. But in the end, those who wash their robes, that image of cleansing again through the blood of Jesus, those who wash their robes, chapter 7, verse 14, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter the city by the gates, they will be blessed. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood will find themselves outside this city and isolated from the tree of life. 22.15, this book, this apocalyptic prophecy, this letter to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ calls us incessantly to endure in the worship and obedience that are due our God. That's the point of the book. Worship, obey, endure. That's our title. 
We are called to that incessantly because God is worthy and Christ has enabled us to walk in a manner worthy of Him. So the question today from this introduction and overview, are you hearing and responding to this call? Are you hearing and responding to this call? Worship and obedience, endurance, by the grace of God for His glory. My friends, what this book is going to show us is that there couldn't be more at stake. There couldn't be more at stake. So are you hearing and responding to its call? I'll leave you with that question today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to begin a study that has our unconditional, unswerving response to you in the crosshairs, showing us enough of what you plan and intend and how you will bring that about so that we can trust you with our very lives and recognize that endurance will not end up being a fool's errand, but it will be the basis of our eternal reward and our joy and gladness forever in your presence, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who will rightly receive our worship and praise. Well, Father, as a church, I pray that in these days you would help us to hear and to obey the words of this prophecy, knowing that the time is at hand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.